Sure. I am Sam. I'm a senior here at UGA. Um, and tonight we will be reading out of Acts chapter 14, um, verses 8 through 20. So if you'd like to follow along. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped, jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the, he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bowls and wreaths to the city gates because, uh, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he, yet, he has not, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He, prov he provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. This is the word of God. Tonight we're going to talk about the Spirit's collision with worldviews. There's three angles I want you to keep your eyes out for as we talk about these uh, 12 or so verses. Number one, hearing... Hearing is believing. Number two, believing is seeing. Number three, seeing sees a God who's come down. Hearing is believing, not seeing. Believing is seeing. And what do we see when we believe? What we see is a God who's come down. Let me pray, and we'll get started. Jesus, speak tonight. What Sam just read is your word, it is your voice. It is real, it is fresh, it is powerful. It came from your mouth, which also said, let there be light. Your mouth that said, rise up, and people rose up. Your mouth that said, your sins are forgiven, and people's sins were forgiven. Your word, your voice has power because you're king. Show your power tonight, we pray, because we need it. We need life, we need faith, we need eyes to see, we need ears to hear, and we need to see you, the God who has come down to meet us where we are. Be with us, we pray. It is a genuine request, Lord, because our need is real. We ask this in your name, amen. I don't know about you, but... I have a lot of friends, some of my best friends are conspiracy theorists of one variety or another. Not all of them, but some. 
And uh, you know how it goes. They doubt everything from the moon landing. There's no way we landed on the moon. If you look at the shadows, it's totally doctored. They don't believe that Lee Harvey Oswald killed Kennedy. It was a mob hit or the vice president got him assassinated. Uh, They don't believe that 9-11 was done by terrorists. They believe it was an inside job. And one of my best friends in New Mexico who might be listening to this and will immediately be outed, um, he believes the world is flat. He really does. And the, 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 the thing is that we've spent so many nights arguing over these things and my friends, they're, they're well-educated. They're smart guys. They're awesome people. They're amazing people. They're well-read. They read up a lot. But they believe this stuff. And no matter how much evidence or facts or proof that I bring to the table of the conversation to say, that's impossible, uh, it doesn't matter. They have an explanation for it. We didn't land, the, the moon thing was a Hollywood studio, or didn't you know the CIA was doing this in Saudi Arabia back in the 80s, and that's who did 9-11, or whatever else. They have an explanation for any piece of evidence. It doesn't matter what I bring up, what I say, that's what they believe. We see the same stuff. We observe the same information, the same data, the same facts, and we reach radically different conclusions about what it all means. Uh, It's going on in our country right now, you might have noticed. Same set of facts, same set of data. Half the country is absolutely convinced there's a deep state that's trying to take the president down. And about the other half of the country is deeply convinced that the president's nuts. We're all seeing the same stuff, and generally we're agreeing this stuff's happening. Yeah, a phone call was made or this happened, but the meaning that you attach to these things could be radically different. Same news, same information that we might get, radically different conclusions. The reason why we can see the same thing and reach radically different conclusions is we have different worldviews. The whole way that we view the world and reality is different. That's why like, I can sit across the table from my buddies and we can have conversation after conversation and it doesn't matter if you brought it like a, a volume of encyclopedias of, of facts to counteract their arguments. If the facts are passing through the filter of their worldview, it doesn't matter. You can keep it coming. That worldview is the lens through which you see life. It's the map that you attach me, that helps you attach meaning to, to life, to make sense of things. All of us have a worldview, a way of seeing the world, a way of seeing reality, and every fact, every lecture, every sermon, every comment from a friend passes through that filter. And it changes those things. It warps them or twists them, perhaps, if your worldview is off. And it means you can hear all the truth. You can hear truth till the cows come home. It's not going to affect you at all because your worldview The lens through which you're interpreting things is off. And so it keeps yielding incorrect conclusions to you or lies or fallacies or deceptions or delusions or whatever it is. You're probably already beginning to wonder, wow, this is a big ticket item because if my worldview is off, everything is off. What I think is good and bad 
what I think is true and not true, what I think is worthy of my life and worthless and not worthy of my life is all going to be off too. And then it raises questions like, well, how do you know if your worldview is true or false? And who's anybody to say it's false? All these really big questions. Can you at least agree with me so far that it's a big deal? And then we all have a way, a lens through which we look at the world and make sense of life, attach meaning to life and significance to life. The reason I wanted to start the conversation here is because that is what's happening in this Turkish town on the Mediterranean, Lystra. It's a collision of worldviews. They're all seeing the same stuff. They're all, like, they all have eyes. They're all intelligent. At least they have a brain. They're watching the same thing go down, and they're reaching just radically different conclusions of what it all means. It's the collision between the Christian worldview that Jesus is raised from the dead and that he is not just kind of the leader of the Christian tribe, but he's the leader of the human tribe. He is king over all. He has authority over all. He is the one way for a human being to be made normal again and good again and and right with God again. It's that worldview colliding with this Greco-Roman at the time, we'll call it pagan, which is kind of a loose term for anything not Christian. This pagan worldview, which at the time was the mythology, we call it mythology, they just called it reality. That you grew up hearing and I grew up hearing Zeus and Hermes and Aphrodite and all that stuff. Some of us were in Greece two years ago and we got to go to Corinth and we got to go to Athens and other places and, and this stuff was real to them. They spent all their money sacrificing to these gods. They built temples that required, you know, hundreds of years to build. This was so real to them. It wasn't little middle school mythology stories you had to do a report on. It was life. It was reality. It was the lens through which they interpreted life. They had all these stories. You know what? I don't remember the details of all of them, so please don't call me out later if you're like a mythology major or whatever, but... There's these people, maybe it was Aphrodite, like why does winter happen? Why do the seasons change? Well, she goes to the underworld in the wintertime because she's kind of unrequited love from some other God who was in love with her. So she kind of descends to the underworld and all the leaves fall off the tree in despair and life, but she comes back every spring to visit. And so all the life comes back. This is how they made sense of the world. And here's the thing, we're prone to look at them and be like, idiots, how could you believe that stuff? They believed it because they were in it. They had no self-awareness of this lens through which they saw all of life. We have a different lens, so we look at at them through our lens and we say, that's crazy. Here's the thing. We have a lens too, though. You have a lens and I have a lens through which you interpret all of life. And it's kind of like the conversation last week. It's easier for other people to see your culture and your worldview than you because you're looking through it like glasses. You're not very, very much aware of it. So I don't know what your worldview is. I would imagine in a room like this, you put some effort to be here tonight. You kind of know what this RUF thing is, even if it's your first time. Kind of a Christian thing, religious thing, probably gonna talk about the Bible, sing some songs. So let's assume that for most of us in the room, Christianity has to, to some extent influenced your worldview. You might believe in a God, you might believe in the God of the Bible, you might uh, believe that Jesus is everything I've already said he is, he's the king, he's over all things. Maybe you just are kind of at a place of um, Christianity is familiar to me, 
But I bet there's a lot of other stuff in there too that's kind of warping that worldview. I know it is for me. Maybe some humanism in there. Hey, what really matters in life is that you're just kind to people. That's what really matters. All this other stuff, like people fighting about ideologies or politics or religion, just leave that at the door. Just treat your fellow man or woman kindly. And that becomes an interpretive lens. It's how we attach meaning to things. We say, that's not important, this is important. That's bad, this is good. Secularism, we talk about it a lot here. It's kind of the ascendant worldview right now in our culture and has been the past 40 years as we've been moving towards this. Secularism, kind of a way that like, hey, devout religious belief is dangerous. It just leads to violence and conflict and bigotry and judgmentalism. So if you want to believe this Christianity stuff, fine. Nobody's going to stop you. But don't publicize it. Just keep it private. That's kind of the secular worldview. And I know you feel a little bit of that. It's why we're afraid to talk about Christianity in class, or perhaps share the gospel with a friend, because it's in us too. It's part of our worldview. Uh, pluralism. Uh, there really is no one right way. Every way is kind of right. So you just kind of do a mishmash of them all and, and blaze your own path. Hedonism, pleasure, fun, comfort. That's what really matters in life. You only live once. Make it count. Get enough money. Be comfortable. Get nice things in life. These are all interpretive grids. They're all worldviews. Whether your worldview is conspiracy theories of a flat earth or 9-11 not being what we think it is or whether it's secularism or whether it's the gospel, your worldview shapes why you do what you do with what you see and what you experience. It is responsible for the ways you attach meaning to everything in your life. Here's the deal. Uh, Let's assume something, and I'll try to show it to you a little bit more in the next few minutes, but let's just assume sin. Can we assume the world's broken? Can we assume that we're broken? Something's wrong about us. Uh, We're imperfect people. So let's assume something's broken about our worldview. Let's say it's cracked or fractured. Uh, Let's assume that it's warped. If that's the case, we don't just need little tidbits of information rained down us from the Bible. Little verses thrown here and there, memorized, don't do anything. Uh, We don't need software updates periodically. We need a whole new operating system. Why? The system, the worldview, the interpretive grid, the framework is broken. And as long as it's broken, everything that comes through it will be broken as well. Let's turn back to the passage. I already said it. We set this up that they're all seeing the same stuff go down, but this, la- this crippled guy, he has a, he, uh, Luke says he has been crippled from birth. He is lame. He's never walked. He responds in a radically different way. He attaches a whole different meaning than all the people in the crowd in Lystra attached to this. So real quick, what worldview are they coming out of and where did it come from? It's not just the kind of the Greek mythology stuff. There's a particular story that recently they've dug up inscriptions of in this town in Turkey, Lystra. And it's a story that by this point when this happened had been around 50 or 60 years. It's a story written by the Latin poet Ovid. And it's the story of Zeus and Hermes, not coincidentally the ones mentioned here, Zeus and Hermes kind of going on a mission incognito. They incarnate, they become man, and they go around all these villages 
kind of testing the people to see who's hospitable, who's gracious. So they go to a thousand houses and they knock on the door and they, you know, they look like peasants and, and a thousand people reject them and say, we don't know you, get away, whatever. The last house they go to is this elderly peasant couple. And this couple invites these two people, they don't know who they are, they invite them into the house and they you know, give them a bed to sleep in and some food and the, the, end, the conclusion of the story is that Hermes and Zeus bless this couple and they kill the, the thousand people who rejected them at the door. That's the story, that's the mental map that pops up the second these people see Paul heal this man. That's where their mind immediately goes. Oh my gosh, here they are again. It's Zeus and his messenger, his press secretary, Hermes. And they say that Barnabas is Zeus. They don't know what to do with Barnabas. You be Zeus. This guy's doing a lot of talking. You're Hermes. It's, it's reflexive. It's instinctive. Immediately they say, oh, I know what's going on. It's real to them. How do we know? They go get bulls. It gets real when you bring a bull into the equation and garlands, and feasts, and they're spending money for this stuff, and they're worshiping people that look like us. I've never done that of you. It's, it's real. That's immediately where their mind goes. Why? Their worldview. Their, their map of meaning. It's the way they attach meaning to all of these things. That was their map. So how does this change? If this is the starting point, we know this is the starting point. Jesus did miracles in front of the Pharisees, in front of the religious elite, in front of the political elites of the day. And you know what they said when they saw him do miracles? They said, he must be the devil. That's the only way he can drive out demons. It's the only way he has authority over these things. Their worldview, their mental map did not have space for Jesus in it. Did not have space for who he said he was. And so they assumed based on that mental map. So if our map is prone, if our worldview is prone to filter out God or filter out genuine, real works of God that are happening right in front of our face, then how does that ever change? How does that ever change? Well, this is that, that, that line I was telling you. We often, our culture gets it upside down. We think, we say stuff like, believing is seeing. Well, I can't really believe until I see it, lay my own eyes on it, picture it didn't happen. That kind of stuff is how we think. That's our worldview. God's view of reality, he gives us a worldview. The Bible gives you a view of reality, it claims to be the true one. God's view of reality is not seeing as believing. Hearing is believing. That's what he says. The worldviews are already colliding. His with ours. Here's how I know this is what's going on in this passage. You use this lame man as a case study. Luke goes out of his way to help us understand why this one guy responded in such a radically different way than all the others. Verse 9, what was so different about this guy? He listened to Paul. Well, how is that so different to the others? Didn't they listen? They were all together. The, other, the crowd was close enough to this miracle that Paul healed this man. They were close enough to see it because they were like, let's go home and get stuff. This guy's God. 
So didn't they listen too? Not what Luke says. Or they might, their eardrums might have vibrated. They might have heard the wah, wah, wah coming out of Paul's mouth. And like, who is this out of town? Or this is making a whatever. This makes a, holy moly. Did you see that? Luke says, not they listened to Paul. He says, when the crowd saw what Paul did, they immediately kick back into worldview and they say, the gods have come down in human form and they worship Paul and them. So Luke wants you to see that the way worldviews change is through listening, not seeing. What's the difference in listening and seeing? Let's do a little hypothetical. Let's say like right now, in 10 seconds from now, an older gentleman that you've never seen before walks into the room, the door slams shut in the back, and he comes and he sits right here. And you just see it. There's no explanation. There's no context. You just see it happen. What are you going to be thinking? You're pro- you guys are probably going to be like, uh, let's get out of here. Who's this crazy person? Are they going to do something? Maybe you're in the back and you're kind of like, you keep eyeing them of like, are they going to get up and cause a problem? Do they belong here? When you see something, you are left by yourself to attach all the meaning to it, right? You attach the significance, you fill in the gaps, you provide all that connective tissue to turn it into a story. It's a bad guy and he's here to hurt us. Or who's the random dude? What if I said they come in, like the night my sister came here, I said, oh, hey, she's here. I've been waiting on her. This is my dad. I wanted y'all to introduce, I wanted to introduce him to y'all. I'm so glad he's here. Immediately, y'all have a sigh of relief. You stop packing your stuff to leave. Everyone's like, oh, this is Ben's dad. I told you. I interpreted who he was. I provided the information. You listened. You listened to me, and I told you what was going on. Radically, does it make sense? When you see, you attach all the meaning. You make sense of it, arbitrarily from whatever worldview you're in. When you listen to another person, you are, when you listen with humility and teachability, you are, you are allowing somebody else to mess with your worldview. Some of y'all are humble learners at school, and you realize I did not show up to UGA or UNG or Athens Tech omniscient, and I need to learn from this professor. Hasn't your worldview been changing? As you have allowed this person, you have listened and you have allowed them to adjust things for you, the way you view whatever, the way you view biology, or the way you view business, or the way you view your future, it's been adjusted because you have listened. Listening is the escape route out of a faulty worldview. Listening. This lame guy, uh, we need a better name for him. Whatever. This person, we'll call him Bill. Bill... Bill shared the same worldview of all the other people. Don't you know that? He grew up in Lystra. He'd never heard anything about the gospel, nothing about this Jesus. Paul and Barnabas are the first Christians they've ever heard. They know nothing about this. He had the exact same worldview as the crowds. The only difference is he sat and he listened. And what does the text say happened? Faith grew. I told you, listening or hearing is believing, not seeing. Here's how it happens. Hearing or listening leads to considering. Right, you're doing that right now. Some of you are. Some of you, 
already off the tracks. You're not even hearing, you're thinking cookout after this or big test or what in the world is this guy talking about? You're not even hearing yet. You've already fallen off, sorry. A lot of you are considering now what I'm saying. You're thinking about it. For some of you, it's persuading you. It's starting to alter things and you're like, oh my gosh, I have a worldview and God has a worldview. Where is mine divergent from his? I should probably figure that out. You're being persuaded. Persuasion eventually leads to belief, commitment. Another word for that is faith. You see this? Listening eventually leads to faith. That's where faith comes from. This same apostle in Romans 10 will say, faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. This is how. Hearing lets somebody else's truth it just it smuggles it into your faulty worldview and it begins to kind of mess it up from the inside and reorganize it and reconstruct reality. That's why listening is so important. This man listened, the others heard, and moved on and immediately uh, made sense of the matter all on their own, but he listened. And all the others, again, they just heard, so they attached their own meaning. So did the Jews at the end of the chapter. They traveled from Syria and Antioch, and they came up here, and their worldview didn't have any room for Jesus either. There was no listening going on. Luke is extremely succinct, verse 19 and 20. He, this is like, this is Paul's biggest brush with death, and it gets like half a sentence. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they won the crowd over. They stoned Paul. That escalated quickly. They dragged him outside of the city, thinking he was dead. Jeez, what? Worldview. No room for Jesus. Jesus in their worldview doesn't fit. He's a threat. He's an existential threat. He must be eliminated. And anybody talking about him must be eliminated, too. The only way your worldview begins to change and loosen and truth gets back into the picture is through listening. The second thing I said we would try to look for in this passage is that it's not just, um, it's not just that hearing is believing, but believing actually leads to seeing. So let's go back to this little continuum we're talking about. Hearing can lead to considering, which can lead to being persuaded or compelled. This is true. This sounds right. This resonates with reality. I think this is true. And that can lead to faith or commitment or belief. And guess what belief does? When you commit to something, when you believe it, what does it do? It opens your eyes to a whole new world. In this way, believing leads to seeing. Right? We get it a little bit wrong, but it's way off when we say seeing is believing. Believing illumines your world. So we said earlier, Paul says, uh, faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Other words, the gospel. The good news that Paul says, hey, we're here to tell you good news. Telling you to turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God. Uh, listening, or he, uh, faith comes from hearing that, but he said, another writer says in Hebrews, faith is the surety, the assurance, the certainty of things unseen. In other words, faith can see in the dark. It's night vision. Faith, belief, leads to vision again. It reillumines your world. It gives you your world back. You're probably familiar with the famous C.S. Lewis quote. I think we've talked about it several times in here, but Lewis, who was an atheist who set out trying to disprove Christianity ended up being converted in the mix of it. 
And he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun has risen. Not only because I see the sun, but because by the sun, I see everything else. It illumines everything else. And he says, that's one of the reasons I believe that the sun has risen. I can see again. Nancy Piercy, in another way, kind of comes at a different angle. She wrote a great book called Total Truth. She said, Christianity is not merely religious truth. That is a faulty worldview. If you think Christianity is just the spiritual compartment of my life, it's just religious stuff. You're a pluralist. You're a secularist if you think that. That is a worldview financed by blind faith. Piercy, Piercy gets it right. She says, Christianity is not merely religious truth. It is total, total truth. Truth about the whole of reality It's the key that fits the lock of the universe. In other words, she's saying, you want to understand the natural physical world? Christianity will help you understand the natural physical world as it actually is. You want to understand the material world? Christianity is how you will first, for the first time ever, see what it's all about. You want to understand the immaterial world? You want to see it. This account of reality is how you will see it. It's the sun that will illumine everything else, finally enabling you to see again. And in this way, hearing leads to believing. Believing leads to seeing. What specifically, though, does it open your eyes to? What will belief in Jesus, faith that he is king, that he is Lord of science and bioethics and business and economics, your body and your soul, what will faith in that claim open your eyes to? We see a litany of it in this passage. One of the things Paul says The Greeks don't get it. Paul does. His eyes are open. They say, you're a God. You're divine, which is what we say to our celebrities. You're walking on air. You're not bothered by all the nitty-gritty human stuff that we have to deal with. You're, You're up there in the stratosphere. You're just kind of walking on the clouds. They say that to Paul, and Paul says, I bet there was a language barrier. It's probably why he tore his clothes. He's like, you know, for a while, they're like, hey, Barnabas, what are they doing They're they're like getting really excited. What's going on? And they're like, oh my gosh, I think they're worshiping us. And so there's kind of the international symbol for choking is this, the international symbol for stop worshiping me might be tearing your clothes off. I don't know. But he says, look, I'm a man. I'm just a person like you. I have to go to bed. I I get sick. I sleep. I'm nobody. Stop worshiping me. Why are you worshiping me? Is faith, belief in this good news that these apostles came to this town to preach, belief in that good news for you tonight will open your eyes to who you really are. It will sober you to who you are. It will cut you down to size. I've given this illustration before, but it would not be a good thing if I overinflated beyond my normal size. If I became eight feet tall, I wouldn't be able to drive in my truck. I would hit my head on every single door frame. This world was not made for eight foot tall people. Pride, arrogance, our faulty worldviews puff us up. I'm the center of the universe. The sweetness of the gospel of Jesus Christ cuts you back down to your normal size. You, you fit in this world again. You stop banging your head on every existential doorpost, but you're able to live again in this world normally. 
It gives you a sober view of yourself, a clear self-knowledge and about your place in the world too. That's what Paul, Paul is correcting their record and saying, no, no, that is not who I am. I am just a person. I am just a person and the power that you saw did not come from me, but came from another. It also gives you clarity about things that are worthy and worthless. I know this is, what I'm about to say is going to grate at your ears because we are in this pluralistic, secularistic age, but uh, this is hard to hear a Christian apostle going to a faraway land and saying to them, in, this, in essence, he says it with more tact than it sounds like in English, but he says, your religion is this giant system of chasing worthless things. We hear that in our warped worldviews and we're like, Oh, triggered. What is that? You can't say that. Let me ask you this. Imagine a different worldview. What if, just hypothetical, what if there is one true and living God? What if he has, he has provided one person who is the rescuer of sinners? One person through whom he is renewing the whole world, past, present, and future. What if that's true? Is Spending your life chasing created things worthless? By definition, yes, it is, if this is true. If you doubt this, if you think that's overkill, come on, that's too much, the reason you're saying that is your worldview. And, and God puts his finger on a very particular place for you to say, where do you need adjusting to see reality the way I do? Paul, we're gonna see next week in Acts 17, Paul is not this like, iconoclastic jerk who comes into town and just kind of knocks everybody down. We see such care and patience, and Paul listens in Athens and Lystra. He listens. So don't get me wrong. He's not coming here and just kind of tearing everything apart, but he is saying, friends, he calls them friends, friends, what are you doing? You have built your life around created stuff, just stuff like material things, don't waste your life on these worthless things. Faith illumines your world to what is truly worthy and what is worth less. Um, I, you know, I've told you all a good bit about my story my last year of college. Um, just before I was, before Jesus kind of tackled me and changed my life, I was running from him and he apparently was running faster after me. Just before that happened, weird stuff started to happen. Um, I, it's obvious, like, I bet everybody who kind of lives in the downtown scene eventually feels a little bit guilty and numbed by it, right? And I bet, like, with sexual sin, everybody probably feels some shame and regret there, right? But I started to feel um, shame and regret and conviction and just a torn conscience over weird, subtle little stuff, like this epiphany that came to my mind one day and then drilled a hole through my heart, and it was like, why do you care so much about the approval of your friends? Why is that such a big deal to you? Why do you sit around waiting for their texts? Why are you crushed when you don't get a text on a Friday night? Why does this have such a stranglehold on you? You know what was happening, I can say with retrospect and hindsight? As the Spirit was beginning to change me, He was changing my worldview, He was turning the lights back on. I finally saw how worthless a pursuit that idolatry was. It was hollow. It was vacuous. This is what Paul means 
when he says they are pursuing worthless things. What else does it open your eyes to? It opens your eyes to the supreme relevance of God to you. Uh, this is a little tricky. Paul's at a coastal town on the Mediterranean. There's uh, mountains all around. It's kind of like a mountain range up to the water. I don't know where he was talking, but wherever he was talking, he would have been able to see the sky, the mountains, and the ocean or the sea. And he says, he doesn't start saying, here's what the, here's what the, the Jewish scripture says about God. They don't know it. They've never heard any of that stuff. Paul starts with where God's testimony is clear, with where you can see and know that there's a God, the created realm. And he says this. Uh, he says, why have you turned to worship these worthless things, uh, but turn to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. You add all that up, add up the heavens, add up the land, add up the sea and all that is in them. That's everything, right? Did he, did he miss anything? That's everything. It's a whole kit and caboodle, which is to say this. If God made and directs and sustains every single atom of every single thing in your life, if he is the inventor and the sustainer and the, the leader of every detail of everything in your life, is he not supremely relevant to your life? If he made every little building block that makes up what you call your life, your story, your, your journey, whatever, if he made up all the little building blocks of that, isn't he relevant to the, the, to the completed structure? He's supremely relevant if he made everything in heaven and on earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Paul is saying God is over everything and he's over everything that your life is about. He is supremely relevant to you and this is part of the lights that come back on with faith when he opens your eyes. The last thing that I said we wanted to talk about is not just that hearing leads to belief, and not just that belief leads to seeing, but when you see, specifically what will you see? We've already kind of started to dance on this, the things that your eyes open back up to. God is supremely relevant to my life. That is a correct and true and accurate worldview, if you're thinking that. If you are apprehending the shower of his kindness upon you every day, Paul says, the joy that is in your heart, the crops, that yield their harvest, the rain that falls on you, the, the success of your business or your academic success. If you are apprehending those things and giving gratitude to him, he's saying, hey, your worldview is God's worldview. You are seeing reality correctly. Well, principally, you will see this above everything else, and this is where we end. You will see a God who comes down. You will see a God who comes down. The Greeks had a category for incarnation, Hermes and Zeus, there's plenty more stories of the female and male gods becoming. The reason they always came down, though, was for very petty human reasons. Zeus came down to impregnate human women, the, the stories go. Other gods would come down to kind of set things straight like the way a parent might say, don't make me come down there. They would come to battle like proxy wars against other gods they were jealous of or took their stuff. They were master manipulators. They were capricious. They were petty. They were lustful. That was the Greek pantheon. So they all had a category of a God who took on human form, who came down here, and they were scared of their gods, not like the way you fear God and, and, and 
might be afraid of him because he's holy. They were afraid of their gods because they were unholy. Because they were bad. What will you see supremely when God, by his grace, opens your eyes? You will see a God who comes down in human form in the person, Jesus Christ, who is recorded and attested to throughout the Gospels, throughout the New Testament, who is prophesied throughout the Old Testament, thousands of years prior. And you will see him coming. He himself says in Matthew 28, the Son of Man, this ancient term for the Messiah, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came to serve and lay down his life as a ransom for many. This Jesus had already blessed the pants off of his enemies. The wicked farmers got rain for their crops. The godless enemies who hated God and never even had a thought for them had joy and happiness in their hearts. He didn't start blessing his people when he redeemed them. There was a long track record of his kindness, his goodness, his compassion. When he comes to a person and makes you alive, gives you faith to see him, reorients your worldview. That is simply the climax and the epitome of what he has already done. That is what God comes down to do. He meets you where you are at your level. He comes down, as it were, to serve you. William Willimon, I'm gonna pull this quote up. This is the last thing I'm gonna say tonight. I think this guy says it best. He's a, he's a Methodist preacher. He says, we thought if there is to be business between us and God, We must somehow get up to God. We got to get up to him. Then God came down, all the way down to the level of the cross, all the way down to the depths of hell. He who knew not sin took on our sin that we might be free of it. God still stoops. In your life and mine, he condescends. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? He asked his disciples before he goes up to Golgotha the cross? And our answer is obvious, no. His cup is not only the cup of crucifixion and death, it is the bloody cup that one must drink if one is going to get mixed up in us. Any God who would wander into the human condition, any God who has his thirst to pursue us, had better not not be too put off by pain, for that's the way we tend to treat our saviors. Any God who tries to love us had better be ready to die for it. As Chesterton writes, any man who preaches real love is bound to beget hate. Real love has always ended in bloodshed. That is the gospel, friends. That is this surprising, earth-shattering news that the apostles laid down their life to move across the ancient Near East to spread to people with worldviews who lived in this fearful capsule of The gods are angry and they're petty and they're indifferent and they're capricious. And Paul says, friends, what are you doing? We have good news. God has come down in human form and he was prepared to bear the pain of this world and he was prepared to die on our behalf that we might know him and not just have a new worldview, a new way of viewing reality, but we might be brought into the reality of him.